Hello, welcome back. The translators part two. Now, funny thing about the translators part one is that it was meant to be the only part, but then it got cut off. I'm not sure why. It was it was um, it was annoying when it happened, but it had a it was there was a it was not without its benefits because I got something to eat and I was quite hungry. Indeed. Alright, what were we up to? Um, anybody would like to send any comments, you're welcome to. Oh shoot, the mic because I put the the camera higher. That's what they said to do. Now I have to do one of those awkward... All right, there we go. Okay. I hope everybody is very happy. We spoke about the Targum of Yonatan ben Uziel, which was on the prophets. Now, funny story. If you look in the... Not ha-ha funny, but if you look in the... If you look in the Chumash, if you look in the uh, Five Books of Moses edition today, you might see a Targum Yonatan on the Torah. Now, scholars think that that's not actually from Yonatan, not, that's not actually by Yonatan, it's by somebody else, and it's actually meant to be the Targum Yerushalmi. The abbreviation, Taf Yud, was misunderstood by one of the copyists at some, you know, some forgotten copyist during, you know, during, during, between then and now, right? Targum Yerushalmi was mistakenly written as, written as Targum Yonatan, and the Talmud, the Talmud indeed, um, it says that, that Yonatan just wrote his Targum on the, on the books of the prophets. Now we move to the books of the Torah. And we go back to that same passage in the Gemara in Megillah where Rabbi Yirmiya or Rabbi Abba quote, um, say that the Aramaic translation of the Torah, which is used in the synagogues, was composed by Unculus, the convert, Unculus Hager, based on the teachings of Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua, those two students of Rabbi Gamliel. And the tradition had him as a nephew of the Emperor Titus. The Emperor Titus was a general, before he became emperor, he was a general who destroyed the Holy Temple. And, um, and, and, then, and then later, when he becomes emperor, the story went that he had a nephew, nephew named Unculus. And he told him, and he gave the young man some advice. He says, buy low, right? Buy something that's you know doesn't seem very valuable right now, but it's going to re it's eventually be recognized that it's uh, that it's worth a lot. And so and so the nephew uh, you know goes and looks for the merchandise, and of course he finds the you know he finds the Jewish faith, and that's something that you know is not doing very well right then. But he thought that's gonna you know that's gonna change, and people would recognize the value of the Jewish faith, and as indeed happened in the Roman Empire. Um, there's a story in the Babylonian Talmud, an interesting story. Uh, where he conjures the spirits of these ancient evildoers to ask them their advice. And, but the, the complication is that the Yerushalmi, there's the Talmud Bavli and the Talmud Yerushalmi, Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmud, and uh, they conflict. The Babylon, Babylonian Talmud tells a story about Unculus, but the Yerushalmi tells a story about another translator named Akila, or Akilas, who is a student of Rabbi Akiva. And he's a tra he translates the Torah into Greek. So you have the translation of Akila into Greek and of Unculus into Aramaic. Some scholars say that they were actually the same person, and that the Targum of Unculus was 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 really Akila, and it was it, it was translated into Greek, and then Unculus. I'm sorry, then Akila translated it into. I'm sorry, no. The, the the opinion that the one person I think says that Akila was translated into Greek, and then Unculus, and then an unknown person. I keep saying that, and then an unknown people, an unknown translator. Uh, uh, translated from the Greek into Aramaic, and that's what we know as Targum Unculus. But that's not, I don't think that that's the generally accepted opinion. Um, uh, there's a story about how after he converts, he, his uncle Titus is very upset that he uh, left the Roman 
Roman religion, Roman gods, to, to, to become Jewish. So he sends soldiers to arrest them. A gunda, he sends the troops of soldiers, the gunda, and they and they um, they're like gunda, gunda, and they and they try to arrest him, and you know, he kisses the mezuzah on his way out, and they say, "What are you doing?" And he starts telling them beautiful things about how usually kings are guarded. They have their they have the secret service, you know, they have the Praetorian guard to protect them. But look at this king, the king of the heavens and the earth, who he he's the bodyguard. He protects, you know, and the, the gunda, this, these soldiers, they're they, they like it, you know. They say, hey, we're not going to arrest, you know, everybody lives happily ever. And then this happens with all the soldiers, and eventually they give up on ever arresting him. Um, this Unculus was close friends with Rabban Gamliel, the Nasi, Rabban Gamliel. Uh, in fact, Rabban Gamliel, when, when Rabban Gamliel died, Unculus arranged uh, his funeral. And one of the things that they used to do to honor somebody was they would burn spices and they would burn uh, uh, like materials, like expensive garments. Very expensive garments um, that were used. And this was the, what they did at royal funerals, and Unculus did it for Rabban Gamliel. But which is fu funny. It's a little bit ironic. Rabban Gamliel is the one who's very famous for changing burial practices, changing Jew Jewish burial practices, because they used to bury people in expensive shrouds. You know, you would you would have to out. Everybody would try to outdo each other with how um, with how much they spent on the shrouds. How much did you spend on your shroud? No, you should have seen my shroud. And and. And but what would happen was is that the poor family, the poor people, was really it was humiliating. Some people would not; they would be too embarrassed to show their face. They would run away. They wouldn't even do the funeral. So, so the so Rabbi Gamliel, who's the he's the prince of Israel, right? He's the, the he has the highest, somewhat political position, certainly religious position in the land, in the Jewish community. And he and he says he wants to be buried in simple linen shrouds. That becomes a Jewish custom. And he was given a lot of credit for that. So it's interesting, but though at his <laughs> not everyone got the memo, and they had these expensive things. I think later that this simple, the simplicity of his funeral, um, of his sh funeral shrouds, such a funny word, shrouds. Um, this it, it trickled into the other, or, or it spilled over into the other burial practices. They're a lot more basic, um, the Jewish burials. Anyway, that's not that's not the main point. Sorry to get uh, to get all into that. Well, once in a while, Unclus is quoted in the Talmud as one of the rabbis. Unclus Hager Amar, he had, a, he had a, a position on the Kruvim, you know, the, the, the Kruvim that were on top of the, in the Holy of Holies, on top of the Holy Ark. And when we get to, the, to his Targum, to his actual translation, it's, again, it's into Aramaic, and we see how translators sometimes are commentators also, right? And there's one interesting thing that you see in Unclus is that he tries to avoid uh, personifications of God. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. I never know if I say that word right. I could say it ten. I'll never know if I said it. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Okay. Yeah. I think. God's hand. God's head. God's feet. And he doesn't translate those things directly. Not always. Sometimes he does. But often he'll try. He'll try to you know explain what it means in the allegorical sense. You know. So when it says panai, God says my face. He doesn't translate it as my face. He translates translated. Translates it as before me, right before Shavuot, the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai. The Lord came down upon upon Mount Sinai. That's the allegory, and so he translates that as the Lord manifested Himself upon Mount Sinai. Well, uh, beneath His feet, when he talks about God's feet, he translates that as beneath His throne of glory. Um, a couple of other interesting uh, translations where you see the the um, you see the uh, you see what a translator has to do sometimes. And, and how they how they're really teaching. And by the way, today the form probably the foremost um, 
translator of the, uh, not translator, before his commentary on the Torah is Rashi. Rashi relies on Uncle a tremendous amount. He's always quoting Uncle Targumungu, Targumungu, sometimes disagrees with him, but more often than not, he agrees with him. And and um, here's some inter- some other interesting, you know, it says, B'nai Yisrael Yotzim B'yagrama, the, the children of Israel left Egypt with a strong hand. What does that mean, with a strong hand? Well, I'm sorry, with a high hand, B'yagrama, with a high hand. And so uh, Unculus translates that, B'nai Yisrael Nafkin B'reish Glei. They went out uh, openly, you know, their heads, heads held high. Reish Glei really revealed heads, right? But I think it means they went out openly, they weren't hiding. Where the Torah says, don't uh, cook a kid, uh, it means a, a goat kid, not a, a regular, but also don't cook, a, never cook a, a regular kid. But in the goat kid, you could sometimes cook, but not in his mother's milk. That's what the Torah says. But the rabbis later do some extrapol- extrapolate, and then they say, it doesn't just mean a kid, a goat kid, again, never a regular kid. It doesn't just mean a goat kid and its mother's milk. It means any meat and any milk. Don't eat meat and milk together. And that's how Unclos translates it. He doesn't write kid, goat kid, with his mother's milk. He writes, Don't eat flesh with milk. Wait. Wait to have that. Okay. Uh, what else did I want to say? Oh, one more. One more, which is fascinating. I was even thinking of starting the whole class with it. But if I would have done that, think about it. Think about it. If I would have done that, then I wouldn't be able to say it now. Would be repetitive. And man became, in the beginning of the book of Genesis, God breathes life. He creates this form out of the earth and then he breathes life into it. It's very dramatic. It's the first, it's human life. It's a soul entering earth and becoming and becoming uh, alive. And instead of translating and Unculus, instead of translating it as Lenefesh Chayaz, a living soul, and man became a living soul, he says, Havat Ba'adam Ruach Mimalela. And man became, or human, the human became a speaking spirit. That's what distinguishes humans from everybody else. Language. Very appropriate for this, uh, for this class. Now we're going to skip a bunch. We're going to skip a whole bunch of centuries. We mentioned the Targum Yerushalmi, and again, if we do other classes, maybe we'll get into more. Targum Yerushalmi can sometimes go on for a while. And I actually pulled a quote from him, and I don't have it here in my notes. So, you know, I don't want you to think that I'm always reading my notes. I know all this by heart, obvious. I'm kidding. I'm always, if I don't have it in my notes, it's as if it doesn't exist. And But if you look, want to look it up, you can look it up in most, uh, in the most, uh, most uh, Chumash, uh, Chumashim with, uh, you know, that have a bunch of commentaries will have the Targum uh, Unculus and they'll also have the Targum, something that says Targum Yonatan or Targum Yerushalmi. That's a later Targum and he will sometimes go on and on, talk about a translator becoming a commentator. He will go on and on and on. Shavuot, uh, 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 God came down the mountain, it says, and he, um, he, he, you know, the words issued forth from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments and the way the Targum Yerushalmi goes, it says, you know, Moses spoke and God, uh, uh, God spoke to God uh, spoke. Moshe Daber That's five words, six words. I can't count right now, but I'm saying it's not that many words. And he has like 32 words to say what happened. The words swept down all around the world and came back. Very interesting. Very interesting. And 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 you think about it. Think think about it. If that's the Torah reading, right? 
if every verse that the reader recites is followed by a long Targum Yerushalmi verse, then the Torah reading is going to be really long. And in fact, it was so long that they used to do it. They wouldn't complete the entire Torah in the year, during one year, as is done today, but they would, uh, it would take three years, right? They would split the parashiyot differently, so they were shorter, so you had, the, you had time for the translation. Anyway, let's move on a little bit. We'll skip, we're going to skip ahead. <clears throat> After the Tanaim come the Amoraim, roughly, I think, 200 to, to 500. The center of gravity for Jewish life slowly shifts from the land of Israel to Babylonia. That's why you see there's a Jerusalem Talmud with a lot of the Amoraim, the, the, the sages of the Gemara, um, that's, that's, uh, that's completed in the year, I want to say, 400. And then the Babylonian Talmud, which is the more famous um, and which is studied much, much more commonly today, uh, is completed 100 years later, about the year 500. And then the next era, after the Amoraim, the, the sages of the Gemara, you have the um, Savoraim. We know so little about them. We barely know anybody's names of the Rabbanon Savorai. Very interesting. And they, they apparently were very uh, uh, act, uh, active and did, they, they accomplished a lot in terms of uh, finishing the finishing, putting the finishing touches on what would be the Talmud. And they're followed by the period of the Geonim, which is roughly from 600 to a little into the thousands, right? So roughly 600 to 1,000, let's say, is the Geonim. They're, they're situated in Babylonia. There's two great yeshivot, two great study academies. Um, what other academy is there? Kind of, kind of. Oh, sorry, not um, motion pictures. But besides for those, okay. Um, wait, did anybody that? No, no one asked. No one asked any okay. It's fine. You don't have to. Okay. What were we saying? You had, uh, you had, uh, you, you had, they had, not you, they had, they had, in those days, in uh, Babylonia, there's a city called Surah that had one of the academies, and Pumpedita had another, Pumpedita is also the name of a very popular uh, band in uh, Brooklyn, based in Brooklyn, I believe, and played several times. At, at that but anyway, um, that's going on in Babylon. When we say Babylonia, it's the area of Iraq and parts of Iran, the old Persian Empire that... Uh, really had so much history, so much history in general, so much Jewish history as well. In the six hundred, in the 7th century, a new religion emerges, and it's in a, again a, a ston, an astonishingly short time. It conquers the Persian Sassanid Empire, it conquers large par parts, swaths, swaths, large swaths is the right probably, probably word to use of the Roman Empire, and the Eastern Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had split into East and West, but we're not going to get into that now. And the first, uh, and this new religion, Islam, the first dynasty is the Umayyads, and then in 750, they're, uh, they're, uh, the, the, Abbas, the, the Abbasids, Abbasids take over, and the Abbasid dynasty is going to usher in a golden age of learning. Arabic became the language of a sophisticated culture, and it stimulated study, and it stimulated translation of Arabic works, and particularly the Greek legacy, the Greek works were translated into Arabic, and from Arabic they would be translated into the European vernaculars. And one thing that we're not going to get too much into in this class, because we, maybe it's for another, but is, is because we're talking about translations of the Torah, but the truth is, is that the work of translating the ancient Greek classics, like Aristotle, into the European, into, ultimately into Latin, and the European vernaculars later, um, that work happens in a very interesting kind of, cooperation between 
Muslim, Jewish, and Christian scholars. And often the Jewish scholars would, would be the bridge. They would translate from, uh, from the uh, Arabic into Hebrew and then from the Hebrew into Latin. It was very interesting. In 892, a man is born in Egypt. A, a baby is born in Egypt. A baby was born in Egypt. He, he would become a man later. later. Um, his name is Said, bin, Said ibn Yusuf al-Fayumi. He's more commonly known today as Saadia ben Yosef Gaon, or just Saadia Gaon, or Ben Saadia Gaon, and he became one of the famous, for, the, one of the foremost, one of the foremost, not foremost, one of the foremost Geonim. He was very active in combating Karaism, which was an interesting sect, which was pretty, pretty large in those days, a Jewish sect that believed only in uh, in, in the written Torah and not at all in the oral law. But but that was part of his work was kind of you know, uh, debate, debating them. And uh, he wrote many works, uh, biblical interpretation, works of philosophy, the works of linguistics, Jewish law, polemics, mostly against the Karaites, and he translated the Bible into Arabic. He had some controversial, controversial translations. We won't get into them now. Um, there's so much more to be said about him, as well as later famous translators, like the Ibn Tibbon family, the Ibn Tibbons. Uh, if we do this again, we're going to talk about the Ibn Tibbins, who translated, it was, it was several people in the, in the family, a few generations, um, and who became really great translators. But we must close, and I want to thank you for being with me during this, um, during this class, and I want to thank you especially for those beautiful comments and hearts. I would also like to close with a quote by an author named Ken Liu, and when I think of translation, it makes me think of this quote, so I want to close with that. Who can say if the thoughts you have in your mind as you read these words are the same thoughts I had in my mind as I typed them? We are different, you and I, and the qualia of our consciousnesses are as divergent as two stars at the ends of the universe. And yet, whatever has been lost in translation in the long journey of my thoughts through the maze of civilization to your mind, I think you do understand me. And you think you do understand me. And you think you do understand me. Our minds manage to touch, if but briefly and imperfectly. Does that thought not make the universe seem just a bit kinder, a bit brighter, a bit warmer and more human? We live for such miracles. Thank you very much. God bless you all.